Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, welcome to CNN Tonight. I'm Jake Tapper in Washington. Tonight, we are just two weeks away from the critically important midterm elections, and I've been talking to strategists and pollsters from both parties today to try to get a sense and share with you what they think the lay of the land is right now. So allow me to be your guide, if you will, as we take a look at what they think is actually going on out there. Because earlier this month, you might remember, we told you about how President Biden's pollster had coined this election, headwinds versus head cases. The headwinds, in his view, challenging the Democrats, majority disapproval of President Biden, high inflation, possible recession, among other factors, the head cases hindering Republicans, what Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell diplomatically referred to as candidate quality issues. That's Republican candidates with limited appeal or various scandals, creating challenges in races that theoretically they should be running away with. But those headwinds, they seem to be a changing and getting a little stronger. And the politicos with whom I spoke today all agree As of now, a modest red wave, at the very least, seems to be building. Best estimates put Republicans at picking up about 25 seats. They only need to win five to flip the House for Congressman Kevin McCarthy to become House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. How worried are Democrats? Well, just today, President Biden directed the Democratic National Committee to transfer another $18 million to help House and Senate Democrats in their races That includes a very high-profile race in New York featuring the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, a member of House Democratic leadership. The DCCC is apparently so worried about its own chairman, Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, that the DCCC is throwing another $600,000 into the race to defend him. That alone for Democrats is alarming. But when Democrats are concerned about House seats in New England, that is a flashing red light. First Lady Jill Biden heads to Rhode Island tomorrow to help a Democratic House candidate there. Vice President Kamala Harris visited Connecticut earlier this month to help a House Democratic candidate there. And Republicans are reportedly now recommitting money in New Hampshire to try to unseat Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan. Continuing our trip now through the political landscape, let's go visit my home commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Tonight, the two Senate candidates in that race sparred in their first and only debate, Democratic Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman versus Republican candidate Mehmet Oz. I'm also having to talk about something called the Oz rule, that if he's on TV, he's lying. John Fetterman takes everything to an extreme, and those extreme positions hurt us all. Now, this race looked like a slam dunk victory for Fetterman earlier this summer, and not just because it's 6'8", He towers over Dr. Oz. People have been trying to label me my entire life. I do not look like a typical politician. I don't even look like a typical person. Since then, the polls have tightened. They seem to be basically within the margin of error right now. And while Oz has been out-memed 
on social media by Fetterman, who paints the longtime New Jersey resident as a, as a phony and a quack, Fetterman has been hit with millions of dollars in campaign ads attacking him on TV for being soft on crime. John Fetterman's record on crime is crazy. John Fetterman supports decriminalizing dangerous drugs like fentanyl and heroin. Fetterman's ideas are radical, deadly, and wrong. And for Pennsylvanians and those in the tri-state area, you will likely soon see more TV ads just like those because today the top Republican Super PAC announced they're going to throw another $6 million into the race. And now it's possible that Dr. Oz could, could become Senator Oz even though Oz has a net negative favorability rating in Pennsylvania. More people disapprove of him there than approve of him. Quite a big gap at that. Let's turn west now. Let's go from Pennsylvania to America's Dairyland and another Senate race in which momentum has seemed to shift toward the GOP in recent weeks, with, again, Republicans attacking the Democratic lieutenant governor, in this case, Mandela Barnes, for being soft on crime. You know, A Washington Post analysis out today found that Republicans have spent tens of millions of dollars more attacking Democrats on crime than on inflation. Now, just two months ago, Democrats were confident that Barnes would be able to knock off Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson. Now, the race is a toss-up. People I spoke to today think that Ron Johnson probably even has a slight edge. And the Democratic finger-pointing has begun. The National Party has totally failed us, and so it's going to come down to Wisconsin Democrats. People are just hitting their heads against the wall. How did we we let this happen? Over a thousand miles away, let's go to Arizona. Republican heavyweights are trying to boost Blake Masters, the Republican nominee against incumbent Democratic Senator Mark Kelly. Kelly, it is believed, may, may have a slight edge, but that race, too, is tightening. In the last two weeks, former Vice President Mike Pence and Senator Rick Scott of Florida, the head of the Republican Senate arm, have flown in to campaign with Masters. The next leg of our midterms journey is to navigate the roadblocks that stand between Democrats and electoral success. What has happened in the last two months that has changed this race? Well, I think uh, inflation. I mean, everybody's feeling it in their pocketbook. That is the number one concern for Americans right now. And yet a new poll from Monmouth says 63% of Americans believe that President Biden is not paying enough attention to the issues that matter most to them. And that may be part of the reason why Democrats also are starting to face some structural problems with various racial minorities, groups that they've been able to rely upon for electoral support in the past, Blacks, Latinos, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, groups that are starting slowly but surely to peel away from automatically supporting Democrats. One poll shows that Hispanic support for Democrats in congressional races has dropped by about 13 points since the 2016 and 2018 elections. Now, 13 points, that might not sound like much to you, but even if just a sliver of minority voters cast a ballot for Republicans or stay at home, That could be, in these tight races, enough to hand the Republicans a victory. And voter enthusiasm for Democrats among Democratic groups and demographics, right now that appears a real challenge, as Senator Bernie Sanders told me two days ago. I am worried about the level of uh, voter turnout among young people and working people who will be voting Democratic. I think what we have got to do is contrast what a strong pro-worker Democratic position is 
with the corporate agenda of the Republicans. So the headwinds are discouraging those voters from voting Democratic and among key swing voters, Democrats who control the White House and the House and the Senate, they're being held responsible for the state of the nation. Democrats have everything, everything to lose. So here is where on our midterms tour, you would expect we would bump into the face of the party, President Joe Biden. No one would fault you for assuming that Biden is right now out there blitzing the country, rallying in every single battleground state, along with Bruce Springsteen and Bon Jovi and Jay-Z, trying to protect his majority. The reality is, he's not. Not even in Pennsylvania, where the famous son of Scranton has roots. As of now, Democratic candidates in Pennsylvania do not seem to want him there, which makes it all the more challenging for Biden and his party to buck historical trends. Because history shows that the party in power tends to lose seats in the midterm elections. For George W. Bush in 2006, he took a thumping. Look, this is a close election. The, if you look at race by race, it was close. The cumulative effect, however, was not too close. It was a thumping. For Barack Obama in 2010, despite star-studded rallies, he took a shellacking. I'm not recommending for every future president that they take a shellacking like, they, like I did last night. A thumping, a shellacking. I'm not sure what gerund Joe Biden might trot out in two weeks. A f- stomping, perhaps. But if Biden acknowledges a walloping, it's not as if it would be unprecedented. Now, the past might not be prologue, however, when it comes to something else. And as your election guide, I've got to warn you, boys and girls, watch your step. We're entering uncharted territory. This will be the very first election since Donald Trump convinced a huge swath of the American public that the U.S. election system is rigged. It's a false charge, but it led to a bloody insurrection. And this time around, we're seeing big signs of potential trouble. Candidates in key races across the country continue to lie to voters about the 2020 election. These are, in some cases, the very same people who will be in charge of certifying the election results if they win. The list includes Secretary of State candidates in Nevada and Arizona, plus Arizona's Republican candidate for governor, Carrie Lake. That could become a huge problem in 2024 if those folks get elected and if they continue to swear allegiance to Trump's lies instead of the U.S. Constitution. Another issue now, not in 2024, but now, these allegations of voter intimidation we're hearing. Intimidation by vigilantes. Some of them are now under investigation. Last Friday, two armed individuals dressed in tactical gear were spotted at a ballot drop box in Mesa, Arizona. Also in the Grand Canyon State, a group calling itself Clean Elections USA, accused of stalking ballot boxes, taking photos of voters' license plates. This is impacting mostly, we're told, Latino voters and, in particular, the elderly. Seniors often prefer a ballot drop-off to having to stand in long lines, according to a lawsuit filed on behalf of those voters. And yet, Clean Elections USA has allegedly accused at least one voter, perhaps your average grandma, of being a mule. A mule is a reference to a fringe voter fraud conspiracy that was amplified in the latest MAGA propaganda film, the widely discredited, fact-challenged 2,000 Mules. 
Now we come to the most important question of all. Was the magnitude of vote trafficking enough to tip the balance in the 2020 presidential election? It's not a leap to say this would have made a difference. It's not a leap. It's just a lie. It's just a huge lie. How full of crap is it? Well, they had to pull the 2000 Mules book before it even went on sale. They had to edit it. They had to rewrite it, presumably to avoid legal action, according to NPR today. In the 2020 election and in the 2022 midterms, there is no credible evidence of mules. There is credible evidence of jackasses. Now, this is just what the terrain looks like right now, and it is hard to know what it all might mean. The U.S. is also currently seeing record numbers for early voting. More than 9 million Americans have already cast their ballots. Is that good for Democrats? Is it good for Republicans? One thing we can assert is it's good for democracy. It's good for the republic. There is something motivating Americans to drop what they're doing, stand in line, and participate in a midterm election. Regardless of what experts are predicting right now, whether they're relying on polling or turnout data, inflation, whether they're reading animal entrails, as always, you, the American people, you get the final say. Now, we're about to tap into the brain of a former lone wolf in the Republican Party, an independent mind, Congressman Justin Amash, famously left the Republican Party over Trump and Trumpism. He was the first Republican lawmaker to back impeachment. And as a hard right Freedom Caucus member at the time, Amash fired the warning shot years ago, saying that our politics, our partisanship was in a partisan death spiral. What does he make of today's state of play? We'll ask him next. With the midterm elections just two weeks away today, many voters are now retreating into their left corner and their right corner, but it's the folks in the middle, swing voters, folks who don't fit neatly into Democratic or Republican labels that often end up determining the outcome of key races, congressional districts, and states. Case in point, Justin Amash. He was the founding member of the House Freedom Caucus. He was the first Republican to come out against Trump during Trump's first impeachment Amash subsequently decided to leave the Republican Party. He switched to become an independent. Then he left Congress and became a libertarian. So what does Justin Amash make of the state of the politics of the November elections? Former Michigan Congressman Justin Amash joins me now live in studio. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jake. Good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too. um, When you left the Republican Party in 2019, you wrote in a Washington Post op-ed, quote, I've become disenchanted with party politics and frightened by what I see from it. The two-party system has evolved into an existential threat to American principles and institutions. So three years later, do you feel that same way still? Yes, absolutely. And I don't think anything has changed structurally to make it better. So if you look at what President Biden is doing, what Speaker Pelosi is doing, what the Senate Majority Leader is doing, and then if you look at what the Republicans are doing, it's, it's the same dysfunction, the same partisanship, the same lack of representative government it, it doesn't work the way our Constitution is designed. So what would need to happen? Is it, do you think the parties are just being pulled too far to the extremes? Do you think there needs to be less gerry, gerrymandering? What, what, what changes? I think some of those electoral changes would help. I mean, with respect to gerrymandering, um, if you had ranked choice voting in more states, I think that would help. But I do think you need structural reforms in Congress, and really that can only be uh, handled at the top. Someone like Speaker Pelosi or whoever the Speaker of the House is 
Kevin McCarthy, who I don't think will, will do this, uh, needs to decentralize the Congress and let members participate. Right now, they don't participate at all. They're basically given uh, legislation and told, take it or leave it. And I think that leads to a lot of performative politics, because when you can't debate policy, you, de- you debate personalities. And I think that's what happens all the time in Congress. Yeah, and it's actually one of the reasons when people who are out there who are watching their TV ads and they say Congressman Jones voted with Nancy Pelosi 99% of the time. Honestly, like the kinds of votes that happen in Congress right now, they're pretty baked in. Like most people vote 95% with their party, it seems. Yeah. When I first got to Congress, we had more votes on the floor. We had more amendment votes. We were able to participate. Members of Congress today, at least in the House of Representatives, can't even offer amendments on the House floor that will be taken up. The leadership basically says you have to send it to the Rules Committee, they're going to vet it, and they're going to decide whether you can have a vote on it. So there are very few amendments now on the House floor, and that means you don't get to differentiate the members of Congress very much. When I first got in— Or improve legislation. Yeah, or improve the legislation. Yeah. Uh, When I got in there— you might have 100 amendments on a piece of legislation. Some people might think that's too much, but what's nice about it is you get to know who your member of Congress is, and you also get to discover the outcome. You get to actually represent people. You all get in there, you have this just giant pie of, of material, and then you put it together and you see what comes out. So you, you live in Michigan, uh, battleground state, lots of competitive races. The governor's race uh, is competitive. What are you sensing? You heard uh, my monologue earlier talking about how uh, it seems right now Democrats and Republicans feel as though Republicans are going to probably have a pretty good night in in two weeks. What what are you picking up out there? Yeah, that's my sense, too. I think Republicans will take back the House. Uh, I think the Senate is a close call, but it seems like increasingly they might take the Senate as well. I'm not sure this is a good thing for Republicans in the long run, especially for Kevin McCarthy if he's the Speaker of the House. Why? Because if you have a small Republican majority, if it's not a big enough win on election day, and it could be, I think, a marginal win for Republicans. In other words, they maybe have a 10 or 15 seat majority or something like that. If that's the case, then you have a few members of the House who will basically be able to dictate the process to Kevin McCarthy, which could be good for the overall flow of the House. It might actually open things up, but it's going to make Kevin McCarthy's job miserable. And, and uh, Kevin McCarthy, not somebody that you have a tremendous yeah. regard for his, le- for his leadership skills. Right. Not someone I admire. Uh, I think he's basically craven. I think uh, his goal in life is basically to empower himself. And I've seen him go through Congress not knowing what he's talking about, switching policy positions on a dime. Uh, we saw that with President Trump, where one day he's saying Trump is responsible for January 6th. Another day he's saying... Trump is great and he's not responsible. So, you know, he's a guy who's about himself, and I think that's really bad for Congress. But when you look at how Congress has functioned under Speaker Pelosi or under Speaker Ryan or or even under Boehner, it's been a pretty closed-off place for a long time. And if we don't fix that, you're going to keep having people like Kevin McCarthy. So I want to ask you about the debate in your home state of Michigan this evening between the Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, and the Republican nominee, uh, Tudor Dixon. Let's let's listen to a quick snippet from that. She refuses to accept the outcome of the last election. She has not yet said she will accept the outcome of the next election. So when she says she will accept the will of the people, she is an election denier and does never, ever has said that Joe Biden actually won this last election. I would like to comment on Gretchen Whitmer and her 
demeanor tonight coming after me, calling me an election denier. We know that this is going to be the way the evening goes. But I'm wondering when she will say that she can't run with Lieutenant Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist anymore, because I would believe that he is also an election denier. All right. Just just to bring people some facts here. Uh, Tudor Dixon there is referring to a 2017 Detroit city clerk race. And it's true. Whitmer's lieutenant governor asked for a recount. After the recount was completed, he accepted the results, which is, of course, entirely different from Tudor Dixon, who has repeatedly said that she doesn't believe Joe Biden won the presidency in 2020 and has spread falsehoods about widespread voter fraud. Um, this is a real sickness in the Republican Party, this election, these election lies. Yeah, I think it's a big problem, but the Democrats keep handing them ammunition. So I think that's also, you do have people like Stacey Abrams and others over the years who have said things and they'll latch on to anything. So even if there's a little bit, the Republicans are going to latch on to it. It's partisan politics. It's not the same degree. It's not the same level. And it might only be a few people in the Democratic Party and a lot of people in the Republican Party. But unfortunately, what happens, and I've seen this in politics, is if one party gives them a little bit. They'll say, well, you're just like us. There's right. no difference. And we're just trying to defend democracy the same way you are. Dixon's one of at least nine candidates on the ballot uh, in Michigan have questioned or denied the results of the 2020 election, including the Republican nominees for Secretary of State and, and Attorney General. Um, I, I know you, and uh, you know, I, I thought you, you were an interesting legislator. Uh, your successor, Peter Meyer, the same. Um, what's going on in the Republican Party in Michigan? <laughs> I guess it's the same thing that's going on nationally. I mean, it's the same thing everywhere. But when you look at Peter Meyer's recent race, he came close to winning, right? Right. It wasn't like a, a blowout by the, the Trump-backed candidate. So I think there is a possibility and opening for people to move this back in the right direction in select places in the country, not everywhere. Maybe West Michigan is very different from a lot of other places in the country. But I don't think it's, it's a wholesale everywhere uh, Trump-backed candidates are going to win. And, and you saw that in, in places like Georgia as well and, and other races where there are some non-Trump-backed candidates who have succeeded. Sane Republicans. Yeah. Good to see you. Justin Amash, always good to have you. I'm glad you're getting to spend more time with your family. That's Thanks, a, That's Jay. a wonderful yeah, thing. Appreciate it. Want to make a change in the world? Do like the people of Iran. They are rising up against oppression right now. Do not try to elicit change by flinging food at famous masterpieces. It's a very important tale of two tactics. The powerful and the pointless when we return. Name-calling and baseless accusations, trolling, smearing, it does seem as though political debates too often exist at the intellectual level of an infant making a mess with food in order to get attention. So perhaps it's actually not so surprising to see protests about a very important issue Reduced to this. Over the weekend, a pair of German protesters threw mashed potatoes at Claude Bonet's painting Grain Stacks in a museum in Potsdam. Earlier this month, tomato soup was smeared on Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers at the National Gallery in London. It isn't all high-end art, of course, at Madame Tussauds in London. Two people smeared chocolate cake on the wax figure of King Charles. When there's no museum around, the supermarket's milk case seems to work. These so-called milk-poor stunts are becoming more common across the UK. The paintings are all covered in glass, so thankfully they're all fine. But spare a thought for the grocery clerk who had to clean up all that milk. All of this is part of a series of protests that we're told are about the role of fossil fuels 
in climate change. If you put that together on your own, congratulations. Spectacle has long served a purpose in protest, of course, everything from naked women showering in the streets to a guy with a sign climbing well-known landmarks, even a globe-trotting giant inflatable baby Trump balloon have been employed to grab attention, draw cameras to issues of some sort. Now, admittedly, some tactics work better than others, but this isn't a suffragette slashing a painting at the National Gallery more than 100 years ago. That was about how men viewed women in art in Diego Velasquez's uh, Rokabi Venus. And, and it's not the Sons of Liberty tossing tea into Boston Harbor. The objective in those cases went beyond a viral moment, of course. That requires convincing people, mobilizing them to demand action. We see that right now in Iran. People out in the streets doing the hard work of protesting, of organizing, channeling the frustrations into what is now six weeks of protests. Now, look, I'm not saying protests have to be nice or polite, but the goal should theoretically be about change, applying pressure to officials in power, convincing the public of a wrong that needs to be righted, the murder of George Floyd. Enraged people across this country. They took to the streets. They made their voices heard. Now, while the slogan that emerged, defund the police, was and is counterproductive and damaging to the cause, Nationally, substantive reforms passed on the local level. The movement worked. More than a dozen cities increased funding for community programs, such as supportive housing, violence prevention. Voters went to the ballot. They increased oversight of law enforcement in red and blue states. More than 30 states enacted policing reforms through their legislatures. The Americans bankrolling protests such as the soup smearing. I don't know. They're promising now more of these stunts. Climate protests over the years have prompted real substantive changes in public opinion, in laws. And that's the thing. The kids smearing food on art right now, they're right about the planet. But their approach, it's lazy. It's sloth. They're just attacking what's available. It's only slightly more of an effort than tweeting out a hashtag. And it's far more polarizing. They're exacting. They're inciting. No change. Another attention-seeking fail, the artist formerly known as Kanye West. Not a good idea to rebrand yourself as an anti-Semite. Even more companies severing ties with him today. An opportunity for us to keep shining light on the rise of hate. That's next. Growing fallout tonight for Ye, the artist formerly known as Kanye West, after his string of recent anti-Semitic remarks. Today, Adidas, which produces the popular Yeezy shoe line, said it is ending the near-decade-long partnership with the performer. Foot Locker is now pulling Yeezy products from its shelves. Gap doing the same after ending its partnership with Ye last month. Corporate America taking action, and it's clear that Ye's anti-Semitism is having an impact. This weekend, a hate group displayed this banner on an interstate overpass in Los Angeles. It reads, Kanye is right about the Jews. Another sign read, quote, honk if you know. A number of people raised their arms in a Nazi salute there, as you see. Let's talk to the CEO and president of the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles, Rabbi Noah Farkas, also with us 
activist, actress, and host of the We Need to Talk podcast, Melinda Hale. Rabbi Farkas, let me start with you. What went through your mind when you saw those images of a hate group in your home city hailing Hitler in the middle of the 405 in broad daylight? How is the Jewish community in Los Angeles responding? You know, the Jewish community, Jake, is on edge right now because this incident is not the only incident of anti-Semitism. There have been leaflets dropped over neighborhoods. There have been people walk out their doors and see images of vicious anti-Semitism right on their doorstep. And so uh, we're feeling a bit on edge right now. We're, we're feeling a little uncomfortable uh, here in Los Angeles. White hate groups have to do with the fact that he's, he's a black man speaking out against Jews. Sorry, I, you went out a little bit. I didn't hear you. I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you think part of the reason that white hate group in Los Angeles is making hay out of uh, Kanye West's remarks is because he's black and, and this is a, a, about dividing, uh, dividing uh, minority groups? I think that does definitely play a part into it. And I think that they're using his blackness as a way to affirm their hate And I don't think that Kanye realizes that he is being used. And so I do think it is really disappointing to see. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating as a black woman, as a black person in America, to see somebody being used to further white supremacist ideology. Rabbi, in 2016, Adidas called its relationship with the rapper the most significant partnership ever created between a non-athlete and an athletic brand. Uh, Adidas now says they're going to lose about $246 million from their fourth quarter sales after severing the relationship. What's your take on Adidas taking this action? How important is it, do you think, for corporations to to take action despite the fact that it's against their bottom line? I think it's incredibly important. Uh, We can put a number on it, like 246 million, like you said, but the truth is we can't put a number on hate itself. And and as, uh, as we just said earlier, the, the whole point of trying to divide us as historically marginalized community in this country, that has been a tool of white supremacy in, in this country for, for hundreds of years. And uh, as Angelinos, I, I can say that we're just not going to stand for that. We're going to come together and we're going to try to move beyond this moment and try to build a city that lives up to our namesake. And yet, Melinda, I have to say... I did not hear much of an outcry anywhere after uh, Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville a few weeks ago made a a hideously racist statement in which he seemed to suggest that Democrats support crime, Democrats support reparations because they want that money to go to the people committing the crime. In other words, he was saying blacks are responsible for all crime. Tuberville said this at a rally. I don't think there's been any price he's paid. That's interesting because I wasn't even aware of those comments as well. And I think that because Kanye is in the position that he's in, he's going to get more backlash than someone like Tuberville. Um, So, yeah, that's actually news to me, you saying that. I wasn't aware of those comments that he had made. Well, let me ask you also, Melinda, because earlier this month, the Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee, uh, they, they tweeted Kanye, Elon, Trump about Kanye West, Elon Musk, and Donald Trump, seemingly a show of support for all three men. Uh, but since those remarks, since, I mean, since that tweet, uh, Kanye went on his latest anti-Semitic rant. Are you surprised the tweet hasn't been taken down at all? I'm not surprised because one thing that I have noticed about the Republican Party is that they will fall in line 
with each other, no matter what they are standing for. So I think if the goal is to support Kanye, support Trump and support Elon, no matter what they say or what they do, then that tweet is going to remain up. Absolutely. And Rabbi, uh, another recent comment uh, that was criticized by the Anti-Defamation League for Anti-Semitism was a comment that Trump posted on his social media site, uh, Truth Social. He said, no president has done more for Israel. U.S. Jews have to get their act together and appreciate what they have in Israel before it's too late. I don't know what that means, before it's too late. The CEO of the ADL called the comments insulting and disgusting. What do you think? Look, I think no matter who says what and who is the person that is uh, espousing uh, views like that, that we as a, a Jewish community and we as a historically marginalized community just have to stand up to hate. That's what's going to make America different than other countries is when groups like ours, groups like Jews, groups like African-Americans, like Latinos, like API, and all those groups that have always been left out in one way or another come together and stand up and say, we're just, we're just not going to live this way. We're going to build a city that's better than we found it. And I think that needs to be the core of how we move forward out of this moment, out of the Kanye moment, and into whatever the future holds for us. All right. Thank you, Rabbi Noah Farkas and Melinda Hale. Good to have both of you on. Appreciate your comments tonight. There's also a lot of good in the world. People who champion diversity, gender equality, such as my next guest, a scientist with a truly remarkable hobby, prepared to be inspired. It's coming up. How many female scientists can you name off the top of your head? Marie Curie, Rosalind Franklin, they might come to mind. But there are so many other names worth knowing in the field of STEM. That's science, technology, engineering, and math. STEM is an area where women are historically underrepresented, often discriminated against, such as mathematician Gladys West, whose work was key to making GPS technology possible, or chemist Sumita Mitra, whose invention revolutionized dental procedures around the world, or immunologist Kizzy Corbett, who was at the forefront of developing the Moderna COVID vaccine. These are unsung STEM pioneers, relatively unsung, who up until recently didn't even have a Wikipedia page. Their achievements, however, are now being highlighted thanks to another notable scientist, Jess Wade, a British physicist and advocate for women in STEM. She's written more than 1,700 Wikipedia pages for female and minority scientists over the past five years. She's also the author of the children's book, Nano, which introduces readers to the tiny building blocks that make up the world around us. And Jess Wade joins me now. Jess, thanks for joining us. Take me back to 2017 when you wrote your first Wikipedia page entry. What prompted you to do it in the first place and, and why Wikipedia? I love the idea of telling the stories of incredible scientists and engineers who've made discoveries. And I love the idea of translating those stories onto platforms where people will read them. So whether they're young people, their parents, their teachers, whether they're someone sitting in their university classroom and they just want to find out about that pioneer who made that breakthrough. I love that they're scrolling around on the Internet and then they land on this biography and they realize, hey, it was someone who's just like me. It was someone who's from my hometown or they went to my university. So I think Wikipedia is a really powerful platform for that storytelling and also to give people their credit for, for making these incredible discoveries and contributions to our understanding of the world. There's so many girls and women around the world um, who are still being told that science is not for them. Math is not for them. 
Uh, do you think raising the profile of these unsung female scientists, do you think that will inspire them? I hope it does a little bit of the inspiring part. I hope it does a lot of giving people credit where credit's due. You know, we don't only not get enough people into science, but we don't do enough of a good job celebrating the ones we have. So we don't document their incredible discoveries or their kind of groundbreaking contributions to science or innovation or engineering. So I hope we do some of the inspiring. I think we rely heavily on teachers for that. So huge thank you to teachers for doing the bulk of that. But we also need to do that part of really honoring the scientists and engineers that we have so that we keep them. As many may know, Wikipedia is built by volunteers. It has volunteer administrators who determines what pages stay published. You've had at least 15 Wikipedia biographies deleted by an editor, though in at least one case you successfully fought to get the biography of a nuclear chemist, Clarice Phelps, restored. First of all, why are they taking these down? But but tell me about this successful uh, incident. Yeah, I mean, Clarice Phelps is just another phenomenal scientist. She was She's a, she was an, a Navy engineer, so she worked on Navy boats. She was in the U.S. Navy originally and then trained as, well, was trained as a nuclear chemist at the time and went on to make a discovery that contributed to a new element in the periodic table. So Clarice Phelps was responsible for one of the super heavy elements in the periodic table. So she's incredible. But unfortunately, it's really hard to find enough references saying how incredible she is because the scientific community haven't done a good enough job of honoring her. So we, as scientists, haven't given her enough awards. We haven't written books about her. So when it comes to writing a Wikipedia page, it's really hard to find those references and put them in. So definitely when I started editing, I was a little bit too enthusiastic. It's, it's really hard for me to stay as neutral as you need to be when you're writing for Wikipedia, if you're writing about such icons like Gladys West or Kizzy Corbett. So that's a challenge. But also that just kind of learning the ropes a little bit, you know, as you get familiar with something, you learn how to write a more compelling argument or document someone's history in a better way. So at first mm-hmm. I found it a little challenging and, and, and people definitely do have um, get a little bit prickly. Those old school Wikipedia editors, if you come in and say, you know, historically, we've not done enough good, a good enough job of celebrating women and people of color. So we're going to do that now they get a little bit um, kind of prickly that they've not been doing that the whole time. So sometimes that causes you to some people to suggest they should be deleted. The foundation that, uh, that hosts Wikipedia's site says that over the past three years, more than 75,000 biographies about women are now online. Wikipedia insists they're making progress when it comes to representing 50% of the world. Um, how much more work do you think they need to do? We all need to do a huge amount of work, both online and offline. You know, when I when I started this project, Wikipedia, English language Wikipedia was about 17 percent of the biographies were about women. Now we're up to about 19 <laughs> percent, you know, and that's been four years. So really now we need to keep going. We need to keep this momentum up, but we need to do it in our textbooks and we need to do it in our classrooms. And we have to have journalists like you and broadcasters like you featuring women scientists and scientists of color in your television programs so that people are talking about them and that these scientists are household names so that one day we don't need campaigns like mine, but it's just completely ubiquitous to society. I've been trying to book Kizzy for two years. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're trying. They need to say yes. Whose biography are you working on publishing next? 
Oh, I don't know. I've had so many suggestions come in over the past few days. I was just sitting down at my inbox now to try and go through and find the next kind of incredible Kizzy Corbett or Gladys West whose story's been unsung. So I will find out as I go through my emails. Well, your, your uh, enthusiasm is infectious, Jess Wade. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and thank you so much for joining us tonight. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tappert. Our coverage continues now with the magnificent Laura Coates and the awe-inspiring Allison Camerato. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.